Welcome to Third Opinion MD Podcast. I'm your host, Barbara De La Torre. I'm a physician and artist bringing a blended perspective to you about healthcare and exploring simpler ways to restore and maintain your health. In this episode, I'm sending all the players of healthcare to get therapy because, let's face it, healthcare systems are really dysfunctional. I've invited a guest who is an expert on systems theory and how systems affect human behavior. Stay tuned for what should be a great discussion. You've heard a lot about broken systems without long-lasting solutions, and the pandemic revealed that healthcare systems are not struggling because of COVID. Healthcare's actually been in trouble for a really long time. There's a book that I recently discovered called Systems Theory in Action, Applications to Individual Couples and Family Therapy. Now, I know it's not an action adventure or true crime story, but it's an amazing book because it breaks down complex theories into simpler concepts that apply to different types of therapy. While I was reading this book, I couldn't help but imagine how each of these different players in the healthcare system struggle for different reasons. Whether you're a patient, a doctor, nurse, or administrator, there are common themes like disappointment, blame, and wanting something better. I believe that all of you are at the heart of changing this healthcare system into something better, and I'm so excited to introduce you to our guest today. My guest for this episode is Dr. Shelley Smith Acuna. She is the Dean of the Graduate School for Professional Psychology at the University of Denver. She is the author of the book, Systems Theory in Action, and this book has really transformed the way I think about healthcare and the steps to making more effective changes in the future. Thank you so much, Dr. Smith Acuna, for joining the podcast. Yes, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. This is so exciting. I can't tell you how I geeked out on your book. I had to figure out why am I so excited about this? And I think it's because of all the applications that it has, not just on therapy, but on just the rest of life, actually. You actually helped me discover that I have been a systems thinker for most of my life. So thank you. Well, what I wanted to start with is just getting into what systems theory is. How would you define it to the public who's not, they're not graduate students or, or in medicine? How, how, what does that mean? Huh? Yeah. I, I think if we're very literal about this systems theory, isn't actually a theory, it's a framework or a set of approaches to really understand other theories. But what systems approaches have in common is really looking at organization structures, entities in a holistic way in a way that really focuses on relationships and patterns and interactions. When you said that you've been a systems thinker maybe all your life and weren't aware of it, it's not that there aren't these kinds of approaches that we see in day-to-day life, but really systems thinking evolved to kind of counteract a lot of the limitations of our traditional Western scientific method, which is very reductionistic, isolationist, you know, when we talk about science, we say, how are we going to understand a phenomenon? And systems theory says we understand it best by a holistic approach as opposed to a reductionistic approach. So what you mean by reductionist is that you reduce the variables or the parts that make the whole. Well, and and of course, there's, there's legitimacy in that kind of understanding cause and effect, that kind of linear, you know, we watch a baby dropping a spoon off uh, the high chair and it falls and you say, okay, I understand cause and effect. And, and that's a legitimate approach, but it's also limited. And systems theory really helps us not only understand the limitations, but counteract the limitations. Now, why did you write the book? 
about systems theory for your graduate students? What was the motivating factor? Well, one of the the wonderful things in in my program is that all of the students are required to take systems theory. And in psychology, we often think of systems theory as family systems. And so people will say, I don't need to learn systems because I'm not going to work with families. And in reality, that hasn't been helpful. And in, in my program, as I teach this general systems theory class for all of my psychology doctoral students, I found it hard to basically have a text that really did take this higher level general approach to human nature. Everything was a little bit too specific and maybe ironically a little bit reductionistic in looking again at families or at couples or at communities. And I really wanted to tie all of that together. You mentioned the assumption that it was in certain subsets of psychology study, but it's actually can apply to all. So what are the possibilities that it's existing or being utilized in other industries? Are you aware of any? Yes. And that's been really gratifying for me, particularly being in more of a leadership position, recognizing that in business in particular, there are a lot of systems approaches, thinking about things like looking at causality differently, understanding the importance of context. It it has taken off in lots of different areas. I would really like to delve into how you write about systems theory and apply it to the dysfunctional issues with healthcare today. You write about applying general systems theory to the world of psychology in order to assist with individual couples and family therapy and beyond. I got excited about your book because I imagine healthcare undergoing this intensive psychotherapeutic session that we've had these players that we can call them a healthcare family unit. They're so unhappy that we assume that it's patients that are unhappy, but it's really doctors, nurses, administrators, seems like everybody's unhappy with the way the system is working right now. Would you consider as a part of our conversation today, applying your seven systems theory principles to these groups as if they're in a family therapy session? Sure. Uh, That sounds great. For the audience, this is my imagination, but it's my podcast, so we're going to try it. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to stop to tell all of you, though, that the seven principles, I want to name them before we start talking about them, just so that we plant the seed and you have an idea of where we're going. You don't have to memorize them, but it's nice to hear them. The principles are context, causality, communication, change, structure, history, and the social cultural narratives. Let's introduce the family members in this imaginary therapy session. And as the therapy evolves, I imagine that their names may also change to a new identity, you know, as it is with people, you know, and how they change, how they view themselves and the world around them. We have six family members. We'll start with the server, the bureaucrat, the patient, the guard, the dealer, and the judge. And going down the list, the server, who would you think that would be? The clinician. So a physician, a physician assistant, a nurse, medical assistant, the bureaucrat, the administrators, the patient I left as patient because the Latin origin of patient is patior, which means to suffer or bear. And so that's actually assuming that a patient is in a passive place, that they wait patiently to recover. They wait patiently for the doctor to see them. That's something where there's room for change. There's the guard or gatekeeper or the insurance companies, the dealer or pharma, and the judge, which one example would be medical state medical boards which are in place to protect the public. But it gets interesting if we look at it in the context of systems theory, whether that's in balance or not. Let's begin with the first principle, 
context. So in your book, Shelley, is that okay if I call you Shelley? Yes, please. Perfect. In your book, you mentioned that understanding a problem in context means seeing that all the systems and subsystems in which a problem is embedded. Could you tell us more about the idea of these multiple perspectives and the relationship between the parts and the whole? This concept seems so commonsensical. And yet when you kind of really boil it down and say each one of these six players in this family creates its own context and exists in other contexts simultaneously, then suddenly you see the the complexity of dealing with any kind of a human system. Within this particular group, when we talk about the context of the system, we also are talking about the context of the problem. And we want to say, okay, what is the problem that this family is coming to solve? And what we can be almost certain of is that each one of these individuals has a different perspective on the problem and a different definition. And a lot of time gets wasted on blaming other parts of the system for the problem or on a very narrow problem definition. And so that taking the step back and saying, what's the context of the problem? And what's the context of each of the players that contribute to the problem is already going to set the stage for the other constructs that we talk about in systems theory. That sounds amazing. And yet again, we're not really hearing that in our day-to-day language. But what I did see, in at least in my experience in healthcare, where healthcare got it right with context was in the world of pediatrics. And what was interesting is that that's where they assume, okay, the child really can't speak for himself or herself. So we have to understand the other worlds around them, anything that defines who they are, the context of who they are. We have a saying in healthcare that the worst historians are children and drunk people. So we have to make sure that we gather data, what we call collaborative information. That's where I see where they got it right. Now we have to look at how can we get these players, or let's call them the family members, the server, bureaucrat, patient, guard, dealer, and judge. How can we get all of these to start communicating or bringing an awareness to the context of others? Yeah, very, very literally at my university, we just changed our insurance system. Patients had to sign up with new providers and all in that process of change, we could see that there were many different things that went wrong. And as we tried to have the, it fits with your family, the administrator from the healthcare system and the physicians who are signed up with that healthcare system and the patient, they all had a completely different description of what the problem was. And you could see that they existed in a different context and they weren't interested in the other's context. Was that resolved or how did you come into that conversation? It's partially being resolved. It's not resolved yet. And I think part of my involvement in the conversation is basically to advocate for the patients who are the people who work for me, but also to, again, try to take a step back and to say, what are we missing here? Because something something isn't working. I can share at least some of the other family members, the medical boards, which really they have great people serving and trying to do good for the public. What I also hear, there are also physicians who suffer incredible trauma from complaints that are placed. Definitely, there are problems with context from the get-go. It's not something that can be resolved because it always goes back to what 
we tend to see as the dominant narrative, which is the bad doctor in the media and the danger to the public. But what we don't see is the highest suicide rate amongst professionals are now physicians. They have no place to go. And so when they also try to give context, they're given little choice. I don't know if you're aware that there are many states where physicians are forced to go through a physician help program that's sanctioned by the board and not by a private psychiatrist or therapist. They are paying thousands of dollars. They are also hiding their mental illness if they're having any type of trauma or depression or any other type of diagnosis. They have to stuff that in. There's issues with that. The dominating issue is usually with the patients dealing with insurance companies or dealing with the hospitals or the administrators. But they're a minority that I think gets it gets lost in the conversation. Now, with context, we also have these other principles, too, that we have to bring in. There are a lot of moving parts here, but it, it's interesting. So causality, cause and effect, what's causing something? There's a lot of blame you mentioned that goes around, and it fails to help those who need it and often shames those who deliver it, the healthcare. And conventional medicine alone follows this reductionist and linear thinking. Take it apart to understand it and control it. That's sort of the motto. Evidence-based medicine, which has been a large movement over the last couple of decades, where if it's not evidence-based, it's not real, or it's not valid. People have a hard time introducing new ideas. Do possibilities get dismissed by the way we conduct clinical research would be my first question to you. Yeah, definitely. And, and I love that question where it goes very quickly to causality is that idea of circular causality. So you can have evidence-based practice, but simultaneously you should have practice-based evidence. It should turn into a feedback loop where you gain information, assuming that there's multiple causality, that there's not one single cause. And of course, somebody doing these randomized clinical trials, that's an important part of medicine, according to systems theory, would never want to do that independent of then going back to the practitioner and saying, how does this fit in your experience and what have we missed? What are the other elements that are contributing to the kind of causality that we're identifying. And of course, that's not the way that we practice. And it's hard to think that way. That's so interesting because I remember there was an article that I was asked to read while I was an employed physician about how the clinician experience pales in comparison to evidence-based medicine. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah. Just to clarify, what you mean by practice-based evidence? Is that what you mentioned? Uh-huh. Would that be similar to the keen observations that were made with Chinese medicine that has been recorded for thousands of years, for example? Exactly. Okay. Yes. Yeah. That's dismissed, right? Because it's not evidence-based. Exactly. Practice. Yes. Who is at fault for a medical error then? So how do we answer that question? In the system, what we have right now, because we live in a litigious society, we have to take steps sometimes rapidly to cover the areas of who's to blame, but it reminds me a lot of the airline industry where they try to blame the pilot, you know, for the plane crashing. When there are grave medical errors made, largely it comes from the system and not from an individual. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think immediately I go to using those ideas about causality to think about 
responsibility and blame differently. So it's not an either or, it's not that you're trying to find one cause. As you look in a more complex way, you're saying, what are all of the factors that contributed to this not going well? And, and of course, with something, you, you mentioned a litigious society, so people are trying to avoid taking responsibility for what they did wrong and avoid that accountability legally, certainly. But I think the idea that accountability doesn't equal blame to be able to say, this is the part of the problem that I did actually contribute to doesn't mean that the whole problem was my fault. Well, you know, I I understand with medical malpractice and, and I don't know the answer there to look at a mistake and to say what could have been different. I could give some other examples thinking, okay, I misdiagnosed a child based on an assessment instrument because I didn't understand bilingual kids well enough. And so I attributed something to intelligence that really came from a different factor. Well, to look at all the different things that played into why did the child perform at this particular level is going to give you a better outcome and to be able to say, here's the IQ score, therefore, here's where they should be placed in school, for example. I see. I have another possible example. The, the issue of physician burnout, it's fascinated me for a long time. We blame the burnout often, I mean, just by the actions that we take in our system on the physician. Uh-huh. Oh, there must be something wrong with them. We need to make them feel well and adjust their wellness. I have seen that through the institutions I've worked for. They all have them. And what's really fascinating is that people are not allowed to question the system at all. It's only about, this is about you. It's almost like gaslighting. There's a little bit of that going on, whether it's implicit or explicit, but there is something happening there where the assumption is made. I'll include this as a resource on the history of burnout. There was a an excellent article written in the 70s about burnout. And there's a table that puts an X and a Y axis that talks about the less autonomous you are, the higher risk of burnout you have. And it's very clear with the decline in autonomy, the burnout has gone up. Yeah. And I, I can't help going back to circular causality again, because the more burned out you are, the less energy you're going to have to correctly identify all of the different factors, right. including that lack of autonomy that are really keeping you down. And so the more down you are, the less you're able to articulate what could actually make things better for you, including the changes in the system. Oh my gosh. I love systems theory. This is amazing. (laughs) It's just so interesting. It's like things fit into these principles so well, and you can think of so many examples. Now the next one, communication. I think Very few people need an explanation of why communication is a major principle in systems. There are daily examples of communication breakdown at home, at work, and politics. Could we go over some examples with our healthcare family that we have here in therapy? You mentioned a few critical concepts, inconsistency between message, and this is mentioned in your book. You mentioned the inconsistency between message sent, message received, the intent and the impact of communication and how communication can have various purposes, like establishing status, for example, or solving problems, creating Mm -hmm. emotional bonds. So how how would these communication concepts apply to situations for this healthcare family? 
yeah, you, you can maybe help me think of some different examples because now I'm stuck on what I heard at the town hall that we had with the basically patients and the couple of physicians and then the administrators for the insurance company. But the intent of the insurance administrators was to decrease the patient complaints and to help them trust the system more. And yet the way that they were presenting kind of the outline of the problem solving techniques of the insurance group did just the opposite. The impact was that it felt defensive. It didn't feel like there was new information and the patients were feeling very unheard. The more the healthcare folks were trying to present their good intent, the poorer the impact, the disconnect Mm. there was really powerful. And to try to dislodge that and to acknowledge, yes, insurance administrator, we know that your intent is to provide good service. And yet the impact of your communication is not showing that, not moving things further. And even with that positive impact, I mean, that positive intent, you can't ensure that the impact is ultimately going to be adequate. So the purpose of the communication, if it's to decrease complaints, as opposed to if the purpose of the communication is to actually solve problems, that was another disconnect that was evident in that communication. Because regardless of the intent of the administrators to decrease complaints, if the problem wasn't actually addressed, the purpose of the communication was completely different there. It wasn't going to satisfy the patient until there was some different problem solving. Oh, that's almost like a precursor to our next one, change. Change is really hard for people, but we'll get to that. I have, a, I have an example or two. One is the term patient. So again, one of our family members here in therapy has been changed by, by some organizations. So the name change has happened. For example, it's not the name patient. They're referred to as a member rather than a patient. Now, the intent was to make them feel like a part of something. They have some ownership. The impact, however, is very interesting because it impacts other parties and other members of the family. There's a powerlessness that's felt from the healthcare workers or the servers they feel that because it's always this sort of discussion of the members always right, like the customer is always right. Mm-hmm. And and so there there's that. And and I'm not really sure whether that's really changed the intent or if the implicit and explicit messages were were successful or not. Mm-hmm. Just because you change the name without changing other parts of the system, will that end up just being lip service? Yeah, especially because it isn't again clear exactly what that change was supposed to create other than, or to get to some of the other concepts, structurally, does that actually mean that there's a different change? So I think that you might seek feedback from the member, maybe, I don't know that it's different from the kind of feedback that you would seek from a patient. What does being a member give you that being a patient wouldn't necessarily give you? And I think often we don't articulate these deeper levels of meaning. Yeah, and and there's also something called uh, Prescani. Are you familiar with that? Mm-hmm. The Prescani scores. That is the bane of a doctor's existence or a provider's existence. What they do is they send out surveys to patients to say, "How was your experience?" And then they have these different parameters, and different organizations will 
take one of those key parameters and use it as a measure of managing that physician, not as a learning point, but as a form of management or holding off compensation or not promoting the physician, it has a deep impact. Well, I, I'm really fascinated with understanding. I've, I've seen this written about looking at the opioid crisis and how would physicians who should know better than to be over-prescribing be lured into this pattern and understanding that a patient or whatever you call them with our traditional Western medicine is going to assume relief from symptoms and going to assume that the way to get relief from symptoms is medication. And of course, medications like opioids do relieve a number of different symptoms. Doctors who give that medication are going to be more highly rated. We're talking about circular causality again. You've got a vicious cycle in a physician trying to do the right thing and saying no to a patient requesting medication. And then what? And that's what gets lost. What instead of medication would fill that gap? They're not protected from the potential repercussions of the low scores for example. And one of the parameters is doctor's concern for comfort, for patient's comfort. And pain medication deals with a patient's comfort, but not necessarily with their wellness. Uh Yeah, it's interesting. We're seeing that context, causality, and communication are key players. And we move into the next principle of change. And this principle is a bit visceral to me, actually, when I think about how many times I or other physicians have tried to change the system. Abrupt change, slow change can affect people differently, but I think the audience can relate to the frustration that comes from trying to change any system, not just healthcare. It's so easy to say a system is broken, but we rarely witness changes to make it better. So one thing you point out is the mistake to view a change as just progress. Mm-hmm. Right, And that systems theory can offer a more balanced view of how systems react to change. How does the system both create and resist change? That was what I found fascinating in your book. Yeah, understanding that systems are designed to create homeostasis, change is really difficult. And part of that predictability, you know, for a system to manage these kind of day-to-day turbulence in a way that has something that's consistent underneath is not a bad thing. So we can say systems are resistant to change as though that's all negative and it's not, it's, it's, there are positive and negative aspects to homeostasis and to systems remaining the same. It's very similar to the body staying healthy too. If we look at it from from a circular viewpoint, multi-systems viewpoint that we have in place all these systems in our body to have both, uh, I'll use these terms of positive and negative feedback loop, but the the idea that there's positive feedback and negative feedback in order to keep, hey, what ain't broken work? Why are you trying to fix it? And that's the idea of resisting change. Like you have something that works well. We're walking miracles. can actually live and breathe and, and these organs that have really not changed for thousands and thousands of years are still doing what they're doing. But if we make changes outside of our system of our body, we are actually causing adaptations and disease and, and issues. And that's, that's the idea of Chinese medicine, too, is that we don't just look at the organ and the system. Mm-hmm. We're looking at the environment around us because we're the ecosystem living within another ecosystem. And we're inseparable from it. That's why I love it so much and why I want to talk about it. 
What do you think it would take for us to witness a larger transformation in the healthcare systems in our lifetime? What do you think it would take? I have a handful of reactions. And, and one is, I, I remember, gosh, this must have been the mid 80s. There was a like Ted Koppel town hall about the healthcare system and uh, just talking about how hard it is to have a purely for profit system actually serve people. So I know that's a not a very popular thought but I think some kind of regulation that would really look at outcomes other than profit would be really helpful. If we take that sociopolitical piece out, I do think very much listening to patients and servers in much more detailed ways about what's not working and not trying to fix a problem until you really understand the problem more completely. So frankly, actually looking at your even your list of everybody in the family, I said, starting with patients and with patients understanding what's not working for me outside, but also what am I contributing to the problem? And that's part of that multiple causality that also sets the stage then for the change process is not to say the change is all external, but the change being internal and external both. And if we ask patients to, to say, not only what's not working for you, but what are you doing that is not helping your own health? And then taking that a step further, and why not? What conditions would need to be different for you to actually take charge of your health in a more robust way? I think that would begin to change the system. Absolutely. It, it has to start from where ground zero is, which is the patient. And by doing so, by becoming more proactive, we change the name of the patient, become something different, more proactive, the driver of one's health from that internal change. And again, we move into more philosophical talk, but it's the idea of, you know, changing from within has an influence on others mm -hmm. because we really can't change other people. I mean, you can try really, really hard, but you'll come up with the resistance unless there's that internal buy-in and a response. What's interesting is that you mentioned how in the 80s they were talking about that. In the 80s they were talking about it. In the 90s, my mother was talking about it to her patients. I was recently listening to a seminar she gave in the 90s to her patients about healthcare and the state it was in. And it was as if I was listening to it yesterday, like she gave the talk yesterday. There's some things that just don't change. And so again, it goes to that. Do you think that the larger the system is, the harder it is for a system to change? Does it have to do with how many are involved in the system or does that not matter? I mean, probably it does make it harder. But again, to me, I think what, what's really hard is that we define the problem incorrectly and incompletely. And so then we can't change. And, you know, I, I think the basics in my world, you have the, the classic parent comes in and says, I can't get my kid to do their homework. And this is terrible. And I'm that we've got to solve that problem. And the kid says, my parent won't treat me well. They keep yelling at me. They punish me all the time. And you have that each blaming the other. And we want to say, what is the problem? Is the problem the parent or is the problem the child? Well, of course, the problem is both. And when you acknowledge the problem is both, then you can take a step back and to say, not only what could promote change, but what's inhibiting change. 
And I think when we're talking about the healthcare system, of course, it's huge and it's very complex and there are lots of, of players. But what's easiest is just for all of us to have our own part of defining what we think the problem is and to turn that into blame and to miss the opportunity for other potential solutions, I think. And small changes breed larger ones too. Right. My dream for healthcare would be for the variables to change in terms of how we define healthy, like a wellness visit will no longer be the way it is and not by these metrics, but by what the patients are actually doing and that insurance companies reward it and that they say, Hey, good job on this. And if the doctor keeps a patient healthy, we'll pay the doctor. I mean, this is, again, it's my dream. I'm not forcing this on anyone, but I, I really think that that will create a whole different situation by saying, you take ownership, we reward you for that, but it's a collaborative effort from all the family members in this healthcare family. So we're going to stop here for this episode instead of going through all seven principles, because this these are really major concepts to digest all at once. What we've gone over so far are what we can even just abbreviate as the four C's, context causality, communication, and change. Those are four of the seven principles related to systems frameworks. And they're really important to know so that we don't fall into the trap of blaming one thing for the problem or falling into communication traps or taking things out of context or even being confused about whether change is good or bad and understanding the difficulty in changing a large system. So stay tuned for the next episode. We're going to finish with structure, history, and social and cultural narratives. And we'll continue to have some really interesting discussion surrounding healthcare and around this constructed family of healthcare players who are in group therapy to try to make the system better. Thanks. Take care. Third Opinion MD podcast is produced by me, Barbara Delatore, and is generously funded in part by a grant from the Regional Arts and Culture Council. Music is licensed through Audio Jungle. I'd love to hear from you. Please send me your comments, questions, or suggestions for future topics and guests you'd like to have on the show. You can find the contact form under the podcast tab at the website thirdopinionmd.org. Any comments made by the host or guest on Third Opinion MD reflect opinions about healthcare and self-care. Please consult with your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. Be sure to follow or subscribe to this podcast and submit a rating on your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening.